invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1279. Hebrews chapter 6. I want to tell you this morning the story of a man whose name you may or may not be familiar with, Edward Moat. He was born in 1797. His parents were unbelievers who managed a pub in London. And when Edward was a child, his parents' work kept them so occupied that he would often play unsupervised in the streets outside the pub in the middle of London. Eventually, to keep him off the streets, his parents apprenticed him to a cabinet maker. By the grace of God, he was converted to Christ at the age of 15, but he worked as a cabinet maker until he was 55 years old, and then he spent the last two decades of his life as a Baptist pastor. And it may be because of his exposure to the pub during his early life, but he seems to have had an appreciation for the power of music. So during his pastorate, he would often write poems and hymns that he could teach to his congregation. One Sunday, a man in his church came to him and told him that his wife was very sick, um, that they were afraid she didn't have much longer to live, and he asked the pastor to come visit her. And so when Edward arrived at their home, uh, the husband told him that it was their routine on the Lord's Day to sing a hymn, to read from the Bible, and to pray together. And so Edward said to the man, well, I, I happen to have a few verses in my pocket that I've been working on. Would you like for us to sing them together? And the, they agreed and they, they sang this hymn for the very first time. And uh, the, the dying woman loved it. And seeing how much she loved it, he went home that night, wrote two more verses, and then published it under the title, The Immutable Basis of a Sinner's Hope. Now, you've probably never heard of that hymn, have you? The hymn was six stanzas. Most literary experts agree it was not very good in its original form. It was a mess. And through the years, it has been edited heavily, the most coherent lines from the original six verses being taken and pieced together into four verses that we have today. I want to read you some of the words from the version that we sometimes sing today, and maybe it sounds familiar to you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I especially want you to hear the second verse, because there's a line in the second verse that I grew up singing and hearing and honestly never put a whole lot of thought into what in the world it means. When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Now we understand the meaning of an anchor holding fast in the midst of a storm, but what in the world does it mean my anchor holds within the veil? The, the hymn is drawing from an image that we're going to see in Hebrews 6 this morning. So let's read together. Hebrews 6, we're going to begin in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. 
And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Uh, God, help us to, to gain from this an image um, a truth that would help us in the way that it helped that dying woman who sang that hymn for the first time with her husband and Edward Moat. God, may we receive encouragement from your word of the truthfulness and firmness of your promises to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, the book of Hebrews was written to people who were in danger of losing their hope. If you read through the book of Hebrews, you find it is filled with encouragements to endure, to be patient, um, not to lose hope. And this passage is no different. It's all about hope for the sake of endurance. Before we get too far, I want to just make sure that we all have the same definition of hope. This is something we've seen a few times over the past few months. We tend to use the word hope in a way that is totally contrary to the way the Bible uses it. We tend to use the word hope in the sense of wishful thinking. We we speak of hopes and dreams. We say, I hope that blank will happen. So in our common usage, hope is something that comes from within us, something about which we have very little certainty. Biblical hope, on the other hand might better be defined as confident expectation that God will fulfill His promises. Hope is confident expectations that something that has not happened yet will certainly happen. So biblical hope does not come from within us. It comes from God. It's based on His character, His Word, His faithfulness. It is the expectation that what God has said will surely come to pass because He will surely bring it to pass even if we cannot see it yet. So biblical hope is not like I hope that something impossible might happen. It's more like, I hope the sun will come up in the morning. I have very good reason to believe that the sun will come up in the morning, right? It, It hasn't come up yet tomorrow. In the middle of the night, it might look very dark. Can't see the sun, but I have the expectation, I have confidence that it will happen. That's what hope is. And so what I want us to do is I want us to glean from this passage four truths, four characteristics about what genuine hope is. First, genuine hope presumes our weakness. Genuine hope presumes our weakness. The more this passage speaks of the firmness of our hope, the more it assumes the desperate state, our desperate state apart from this hope. So think about the hymn we sang earlier, when darkness seems to hide his face. In every high and stormy gale, when all around my soul gives way, 
He then is all my hope and stay. An anchor is more precious to someone in the midst of a howling storm than to someone coasting on calm waters. Notice how the author describes us in the middle of verse 18. We who have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. To put it another way, we are spiritual refugees. That's what it means to take refuge. Either you are wandering, lost, and destitute, or you have fled to Jesus for asylum, for refuge. Apart from Christ, our state is desperate. And even when we are in Christ, we still experience weakness. As Paul put it in Romans 8, We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. So hope means that we don't yet have the fullness of what God has promised to us. To say that we have hope means that we have not yet arrived, that we are presently weak. And we live in a time when both inside the church and outside the church, we feel the need to hide our weakness, to keep it concealed so that we can project strength. We want to be seen as having it all together. That is contrary to what the Scriptures continually tell us to do. We declare our hope in Christ and we honor Him, not by hiding this weakness, but by boasting in it. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses. So genuine hope presumes our weakness. And we behold this hope and we hold fast to this hope more when we agree with that assessment of our weakness. The second characteristic is that genuine hope is grounded on God's Word. It's grounded on God's Word. Here in Hebrews 6, the author uses Abraham as an example of God's faithfulness. And the author points out that not only did God promise uh, that He would bless Abraham and multiply him, He swore an oath as a confirmation of that promise. As the hymn says... His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. It's not just His covenant, a.k.a. His promise, but it's also His oath that supports me. Now this can be a little bit confusing because in Matthew 5, Jesus charges His disciples not to take oaths. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So how then is it not evil for God to swear by an oath to Abraham? Well, there's a major difference between the oaths that humans swear and the oaths that God swears. You could ask, why do humans swear oaths? We swear oaths because we can't trust one another to tell the truth, right? That's why oaths are typically reserved for things that really matter. If you testify in a court case or before um, some legislative body, um, you are testifying in, in some matter that could have serious legal or financial consequences for yourself or for someone else. 
And so an oath in that case might be appropriate and necessary because you are placing yourself under the authority of that institution. That's why when you go to a courthouse, there are, there are symbols everywhere. There, there's the judge in his black robe or her black robe. There's the seal of the city or the county or the state or the nation uh, there. And you're putting your hand on the Bible and you're saying, I solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. You, there are all these authorities that you are placing yourself under saying this is how serious I am that I'm going to bear witness to the truth. And if I don't, then I will be held accountable to this court, to this legislative body or what, what have you. On the other hand, imagine you go to your neighbor and you say, hey, I, I've lost my Phillips head screwdriver. Can I borrow yours? The neighbor says, sure, as long as you bring it back. And you say, yeah, I'll, I'll bring it back. And he says, okay, well... Let's go down to the courthouse. I want you to put your hand on the Bible and I want you to swear under oath that you're going to bring that screwdriver back. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I'd probably just say, you know what, friend, I, I think I might go to another neighbor or I might go to Lowe's and just buy another screwdriver than have to go through all that. If you have to swear an oath that you're going to return something like a screwdriver, then either your neighbor has a serious trust issue or you have a serious credibility issue. That's Jesus' point in Matthew 5. Under normal circumstances, you should be able simply to give your word and be expected to keep it. You should not have to swear an oath for every little thing under the sun. God, on the other hand, does not swear oaths in the same way that we do. For one thing, there is no higher authority than God by which He can testify. That's what the author of Hebrews says. Notice verse 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves. If you give sworn testimony, you're speaking under the authority of the court in which you're testifying or whatever body it is to whom you're giving sworn testimony. There is no higher authority to which God can appeal, so He can only swear by Himself, which is why, especially in the Old Testament, you hear God say over and over things like, as I live, declares the Lord. That's a, that's a, he's swearing. He's swearing an oath. The other way that God's oaths are different than ours is that He does not swear because of His weakness, but because of our weakness. The reason God gave this oath to Abraham is not because God was untrustworthy, but because Abraham was untrusting. God lowered Himself as a concession to Abraham to help him be more thoroughly convinced of the truth of God's promise. So God did not have... Sometimes the reason we have to give testimony under oath is because we're, we're having to say, okay, I, I am, I'm saying this knowing that if I don't tell the truth, there are going to be consequences. I'm going to perjure myself. I may be charged with some other... I, I could be charged with some criminal something or another. That's not why God swears by an oath. It's because He needs stakes. The reason He swears is because we need to know the truthfulness of what He's saying to us. He's impressing it upon us. Notice verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. So His oath is not for His own sake, it is for our sake. Notice there that God's oath to Abraham was not only for Abraham's sake alone, but in order to convince the heirs of the promise that His purpose is unchangeable. Who are the heirs of the promise? 
Well, the heirs of the promise, according to Galatians 3 and several other places in the New Testament, they are everyone who trusts in Christ. If you have faith in Jesus, then you are a child of Abraham, an heir according to promise. So anyone who has fled to Jesus for refuge is an heir of the promise that God swore to Abraham and of the oath that He made to him. So if you are a follower of Christ, the writer of Hebrews is talking about you. When he says that God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. He's saying that the reason God swore to Abraham in Genesis 22 is because He wanted to convince you, a follower of Christ, that what He has said, He surely will do. His purpose will not change. And so you have these two things that come together for our assurance. God's promise and His oath. Together they serve as the basis of our hope. Verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things... What are the two unchangeable things? They are the promise and the oath... So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God's promise to Abraham and His oath that He swore to him were not just for Abraham, but they were for us who have fled for refuge so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So his, this genuine hope... It presumes our weakness and it's grounded on God's Word. Third, it is anchored in God's presence. Genuine hope is anchored in God's presence. And this is where we come to that image that Edward Mote wrote into his hymn. He draws it from verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So the inner place behind the curtain, what is that? It's a reference to the Holy of Holies. It's a way of describing the very presence of God, that most inner part of the temple where God's presence resided. That's what the hymn means when it says, My anchor holds within the veil. There was literally a curtain, a veil, between the outer parts of the temple and that inner place where God's presence dwelled. It's a strange image when you kind of stop and think about it. Uh, you're tempted to say that Edward Mote was sort of mixing metaphors when he wrote his hymn, which is usually not a good literary tactic. But he's just doing what the writer of Hebrews does. The writer of Hebrews takes all these different images about an anchor, and there are all these refugees clinging to the anchor, and the anchor is somehow lodged behind this curtain. It's a strange image, but it's all meant to convince us of the security of the hope that God has given us in Christ. An anchor is only good if it finds some place firm and secure to seize onto. And our hope could not possibly be anchored in a more secure place. That's why the author can say that this anchor is sure and steadfast. It is immovable. God's eyes are on it, and it can no more be shaken than God could cease to be God. Not only that, but notice what the author says in verse 20. Speaking of that inner place behind the curtain, 
He says, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time this morning to explain everything the author means by calling Jesus a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It's an important um, image that he uses in this letter. But suffice it to say, simply, that he means that Jesus is far superior to any earthly priest. Melchizedek was uh, this priest who blessed Abraham. And Abraham, the, the earthly priests that worked in the temple were descendants of Abraham. And so the author says that for Melchizedek to bless Abraham means that he had to have been superior to Abraham in order to bless him. And if he's superior to Abraham, then he has to be superior to all of Abraham's descendants, meaning Jesus is superior to all of those earthly priests. It's a little bit confusing, but that's, that's the gist of it. So what is it that makes Jesus superior to earthly priests? Well, the author of Hebrews points out a number of ways. Unlike earthly priests, he does not have to continue making sacrifices day after day that never truly accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10, he's going to say, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Jesus, on the other hand, having entered one time, made one sacrifice for all time and has sat down at the right hand of God. So his work is so complete that it's finished. He, he's sat down at the right hand of God. Unlike earthly priests, Jesus lives forever. forever. The, the problem with all those earthly priests is they all died. Jesus, on the other hand, died but then rose again and He's still alive and His ministry of intercession on our behalf is unceasing. Look down at chapter 7, verse 23. Notice what He says in chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests, that is the priests of the Old Covenant, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. That's why there were so many of them, because they all died and they had to be replaced. But He, Jesus, holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So the high priest who makes intercession for us never dies. He always lives to make intercession for us. And finally, Jesus is superior to earthly priests in that He does not simply go into God's presence on our behalf. He goes there as our forerunner. That's what the writer of Hebrews says here in chapter 6, verse 20. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. In the Old Testament, the, the high priest was the only person who could enter the Holy of Holies. And he could only go one day a year. So one day a year, one person went into the Holy of Holies. The author of Hebrews is showing us here that Jesus has entered that Holy of Holies. He has entered the most holy place behind the curtain as our forerunner, which means that where He has gone, we will follow. Those who take refuge in Him are guaranteed to follow Him into God's presence. He has not gone there only to come back out again. He has gone there and He is staying there and one day He's going to usher us into God's presence. Now here's what I want you to notice with me. I want you to notice how the author describes our hope the same way that he describes Jesus. Our hope is like this sure and steadfast anchor for the soul that has entered the inner place behind the curtain. And that is where Jesus has gone. So there are two things, or more accurately, one thing and one person who have entered the inner place behind the curtain. 
First is our hope and the other is Jesus. The point of that is to say that our hope is not this inanimate object. Our hope is Jesus. He is our hope. He is hope in the flesh. Genuine hope is secure because it is anchored in God's presence. And that is where Jesus has gone as our forerunner. We sang earlier, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. Our hope is that we have a great high priest who has gone into God's presence and been received with high favor, and he has gone there as our forerunner to plead with us and to bring us with him. So genuine hope is, it presumes our weakness, it's grounded on God's Word, it's anchored in God's presence, and last, it is given for our endurance. Genuine hope is given for our endurance. Now where in verses 13 through 20 do I see anything about endurance? It's a trick question. I want you to notice the very first word of verse 13. For or because. Now, if you and I were in English class uh, in, in middle school, will I say, and we began a sentence with because, probably our grammar teacher would say, mm, can't do that, that's a sentence fragment. You're beginning in the middle of a thought. But the Bible does that all over the place. So we'll go with uh, biblical grammar over English grammar. The point is, when we start, when we jumped into verse 13, we were jumping in to the middle of a thought. We're catching the writer of Hebrews in the middle of a train of thought. Everything that he says in verses 13 through 20 is given as the basis for the encouragement he just gave in verses 11 and 12. So... You could think of it as, verse 13 says, because when God made a promise to Abraham and so forth, that means you want to go back and, and say, well, what's this the cause of? So let's go back to verse 11 and we'll start there. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises because when God made a promise to Abraham and so forth. So it helps to make sense of the whole big point of verses 13 through 20 if you back up and see what he's just said in verses 11 and 12. God wants to convince us of the certainty of our hope, not so that we can sit back and do nothing, but so that we can endure in faith. Full assurance of hope should not lead to sluggishness, as he says, but to sincere and patient endurance. Here's another way we could put it. If you know that you will one day be in God's presence and that you will one day see Jesus as He is, that ought to motivate you to holiness and purity now. The Apostle John says that very thing in 1 John 3. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So let's break that down. 
Right now, if you trust in Christ, you are a child of God. Right now. It's not something you're waiting for, but right now we are God's children. But we're not yet what we will be. What we will be has not yet appeared. Because when He appears, we're going to see Him, we'll be like Him, and if we have that hope, if we have that confident expectation that we'll be like Him and we'll see Him as He is, then we purify ourselves now as He is pure. If you know that you're going to be like Jesus perfectly, then you ought to live like Jesus imperfectly right now. That ought to help us appreciate the words of the hymn, When He shall come with trumpet sound, O may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is His blood and righteousness. It's not about mansions or streets of gold. It's that we will see Jesus and be like Him. And if we know that we will one day stand faultless before His throne, then we ought to clothe ourselves in His righteousness now. That means that we trust in Him and we receive the gift of His righteousness credited to us by grace through faith. The only reason any of us could stand faultless before the throne is because He has taken our sin upon Himself and clothed us in His righteousness. But if you are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, then you ought to imitate Him and to put on His righteousness day by day. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3 that those who have put off the old self and put on the new self need to put on humility and gentleness and meekness and all those various qualities. So the question I would ask you this morning is, on what foundation are you resting your hope? It's not about what you say, it's about the evidence of your life. Does your life give evidence that Christ is the solid rock on which you stand? Or have you built your life on the false hope of money or health or status or influence or family or politics or fill in the blank. All other ground is sinking sand. So here's a very simple way we could ask it. What is the one thing in my life that if God were to take it away, I would be utterly lost? I asked myself that question this week. I was so convicted by it, uh, not to be you know, morbid or anything, but Rebecca uh, was, she had surgery last week and she was uh, in the hospital a little bit and uh, we, we had to go back to the hospital this week because there was a little bit of internal bleeding and you know, everything's okay, but there were some times there where I thought, boy, this is kind of scary. And here I am coming to church at night telling all these kids when life is scary God is good but I'm sitting there in the hospital room and I was thinking over this text and and that question came to me if God were to take her away would my life crumble would I find that I had built my hope on something other than the solid rock of Christ now there's nothing wrong with having a wife I love her she's a gift to me but there are so many gifts that God gives us that we could potentially rest our hope on. What's the one thing in your life that if God were to take it away, you would be utterly lost? If your answer to that is anything besides Christ, then you are in danger of having built your life on sinking sand. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. And I just want to let that question 
linger on your heart. And for you to ask yourself that. <clears throat> can you truly say, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand? Uh, I want to invite us to prayerful reflection. I'm going to be standing at the head of this aisle. I'd love to speak with you or pray with you. The altar is open if you'd like to come and pray. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. God, You at times um, prod us and chastise us to endure, and then You come along and assure us of Your faithfulness to us. And I, I pray, God, that we would receive both of those gifts, both Your prodding to endure and to persevere and to be patient in waiting for the fulfillment of Your promise, but God, also the assurance and the confident expectation that what You have said, You will surely do. God, right now in this moment, I pray that all of our hearts would be convicted, Lord, as we think about all the many things that we are tempted to rest our hope on, whether it's the security of our health, the security of our job, the security of our financial portfolio, the security of our retirement package, the security of our family, uh, the security of the country in which we live, uh, the security of our home, Lord, whatever it may be, God, that we would come to this realization right now in this moment by the grace of Your Spirit that, um, Lord, all those things are secondary. They can all be taken away and yet Christ still be our solid rock. So God, help us. Help us not to build our life on something that is sinking sand, but only on the solid rock of the hope we have in Christ. God, convict us of that, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.